0: All right. Uh, Good morning, y'all, and welcome to The Story Online. I'm Eric. I'm the lead pastor here at The Story, and wherever you are, I'm glad you're here joining us online. This is the 13th week of online-only worship at The Story, and gosh, I miss you. I miss your voices and your faces and, um, you know, uh, the the Holy Spirit just lit this room on fire during that song, The Blessing. uh, It it lit my heart on fire and I'm ready to go. And this uh, is good enough today. This uh, on-camera relationship we've had for the past few months has got to be good enough because wherever you are, the Holy Spirit can set you on fire and can change your life and change your family dynamics as well. And change the way you love people. And gosh, that's what we're here to talk about um, today. And we'll get into that in in just a minute. Um, but uh, people have always been asking me, like, when, what day do you record the services uh, that you broadcast on Sundays? And I'm like, y'all, we're here live Sunday mornings. This is happening right now. So wherever you are, you're really experiencing this in real time um, with us here. And uh, one day we'll, we'll all be back together <laughs> in the same room again. But uh, until then, uh, I just want you to know I love you and, and you're not alone. And I'm grateful for the teams of people who are here this morning and have been, some of them, since before 7 a.m. to make sure this service goes off without a hitch and, and is a blessing to you. So I know y'all are grateful too. Hey, do me a favor, wherever you're listening from or uh, whatever uh, um, uh, platform you're on, whether it's YouTube or Facebook or wherever, just uh, let us know in the comments where you're watching from. That really kind of helps us connect with y'all and, and see who's out there. So just let us know where you are and, uh, and what you're up to this morning as you worship with us online. Also, I want to echo what Melissa said earlier about the Story at Home podcast. Um, About twice as many people are worshiping with us now as there were, according to the numbers, uh, when Melissa gave the welcome earlier. So I want to be sure everybody hears about the Story at Home. It's a new daily podcast that started this week. We've already put five episodes out, 10-minute devotionals to start every day outright. They're designed um, just for you to to really uh, equip you to inspire your household to follow Jesus in everyday life. And so that's our mission with this. We're putting a lot of time and focus on, into it. I hope you all enjoy it. You can subscribe on any podcasting platform. And, uh, and even if you don't like podcasts, you can get the email transcripts every morning. Just check in the uh, comments section, whatever platform you're watching on, and there'll be a link there to sign up for that email list. And finally, y'all, uh, thank you for your financial support through these weird times. Um, uh, our, our giving is, is way down, as you might imagine, but so is our spending. So we're hanging in there, baby. But we need your support, and we, we thank you in advance for all of your generosity, even through these difficult times. You can give to the Stories, Mission, and Ministries by visiting thestory.church slash donate. thestory.church donate. And thank you again. All right, so this message is gonna be a little bit, different. I already preached it once at 845. I'm doing it again now, and and I I know it's going to be different, and I know I'm going to need your help to make this message work. It's got to be a little bit of a a conversation here, okay? So I'm going to tell you exactly how you can help me with this message in just a moment. First, um, as you can probably see, we are (laughs) in the middle of this sermon series called Lover. People were like, hey, dude, that sign behind you, is that like a green screen thing you're standing in front of? No, that's a real neon pink sign that is free to a good home. I'm just kidding. That is... Uh, available to the highest bidder. <laughs> At the end of this sermon series, it's yours, or I don't know, whatever we're going to take. It's a beautiful sign that would go in, in any man cave or uh, any beautiful home, whatever you need it for. Uh, it's uh, it's fun, and it's just for this series. What we're trying to communicate here is that the love of God is romantic. the The Bible, the Word of God, is a love story. And in the Bible, we discover specific ways that God communicates His love for us. And if we take those ways that he communicates his love for us and apply them to our loving relationships, we can see our lives and our families begin to change. And so uh, that's what we're up to in this series. Last week, we talked about and learned about how God's love um, intensely pursues us intensely pursues us when he loves us. And today we're going to focus a little bit uh, uh, on a different uh, facet of God's love. And today we're talking about how God's love intentionally proposes to us. He proposes a very specific kind of relationship with us. He has proposed to you a very specific type of relationship that he wants with you. And so today we're going to figure out what that is and how to apply that facet of his love to the relationships we have here on earth as well. All right, so here's where you come in. I hope you will very seriously um, consider one person in your life who you love, but you know you haven't loved well enough. And they may be in the room with you right now. You don't even have to say it out loud, right? I'll give you a clue though. If you're sitting in the room with someone and you're thinking, they better be thinking about me (laughs) to the person sitting on the other side of that couch. They love me, but they haven't loved me well enough. That might be the person you need to think about (laughs) today. That's kind of how this works sometimes. But I just want you to keep that one person in your mind for the next 20 minutes, okay? Keep that one person in your mind as we go through today's message because I think there's something we can apply to these relationships with people that, we love, something God can teach us. Here's a problem that I've um, diagnosed in a lot of our relationships that struggle. Many of us struggle in all kinds of relationships because we fail to define the relationship. Or as my younger friends and colleagues will say, DTR, you got a DTR baby, you gotta define the relationship. We gotta know where we are. And lots of different kinds of relationships struggle for lack of definition but I've seen some kinds of relationships struggle a little bit more. For example, friendships. Sometimes new friendships can really struggle for lack of defining the relationship because there's no blueprint for it in the world. There's no vows two people take when they decide to be, be friends. And if you have different ideas about what friendship is, you're bound to have miscommunication right? Like one person thinks friendship means you see each other every day and you immediately respond to one another's texts, no matter how silly or meaningless they are. You do it right away. That's what friends do. And another person might think that being friends means meeting for a beer once every couple months and never really responding to any texts unless it's an absolute emergency. (laughs) You don't respond ever. And if those two people become friends, you can see how without definition that can be a struggle. But I've also heard from single people on the dating scene who struggle with the lack of definition, all this ambiguity on the dating scene, how and when and whether we should define the relationship. It's just really confusing and frustrating to many single people. And every time I have these conversations with people, it's usually with people younger than me and I I always have the same advice. And because it's people younger than me, I'm gonna offer my advice in language y'all can understand, your language. Okay, now the rest of you are not gonna get this. People my age and older are not gonna get this, but here it is. It's just an acronym sort of way of saying this, okay? I'll offer the translation for old people like me and older than me, right? Here it is. I don't care if it's by direct message, text, or face-to-face. In my humble opinion, you only live once. And to be honest, if you really love someone, I don't care if your sweethearts are best friends. You should define the relationship as soon as possible before they've got to go find somebody new. I'm just saying, the kids don't say I'm just saying anymore, by the way. That's just old people. But anyway, <laughs> you get what I mean. We struggle when we don't define our relationships, when we don't have clear expectations that are set on both sides, all right? So even marriages, y'all, even marriages can struggle in this way, which is a little bit strange because the husband-wife relationship is pretty well-defined at the wedding when we take those vows. But man, how many of us could recite those vows right now if we had to? Very few of us. Even though they're probably the most dramatic promises we've ever made, we just forget once the ceremony is behind us. But if you're married, like I am, you know, we made promises to, to have and to hold for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, you know, to love and to cherish till death do us part. Think about the gravity of these, of these uh, definitions around our relationship, right? The gravity of these promises. You promised to unconditionally irrefutably, irrevocably love someone, even when they're not loving you back, even when they're not behaving right, even when the marriage has been cold and dead for too long, like you still promise to stay and stick it out and love nonetheless. Those are some pretty dramatic promises, but that is how we define the marriage relationship. And some of us need a reminder once in a while about the eternal, unconditional nature of the marriage relationship. Now, This is where God comes in. In the Bible, God defines the relationship with his people again and again. He doesn't just do it once and then expect us all to remember. It's like every book of the Bible has a different way of God, a different version of God defining the relationship. And then he'll redefine it and redefine it. And it's not like the parameters change. He just reminds us of what the parameters are. Like in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 22, God says, you will be my people and I will be your God. And right there, we have in those simple lines, the definition of our relationship. He's God, we're the people. He's up there, we're down here. He's above us, we're below him. His love looks one way, our love looks another. His looks like Jesus on the cross. Ours looks like worship and obedience and humility and praise. And it's unconditional in this defined relationship with us and God. But God really wants us to know the definition of our relationship. He wants us to know this so bad that he sent Jesus to tell us and and Jesus explicitly defined the relationship God wants with us with the four stories we're studying this month. The four stories he told in rapid succession in Luke 15. The father, I mean, I'm sorry, the shepherd and the lost sheep, right? The woman and the lost coin. The father and the lost son and then the father again and the firstborn son. These four stories identify the, the definition that Jesus Put forth for our relationship. But before he even got to those stories, Jesus was prompted to tell those stories in the beginning of that chapter, Luke 15. And it's in that prompting that we find the first clue of the kind of definition God sets for his relationship with you. And it happened this way Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, so those are the good guys, right? Tax collectors and sinners, bad guys. Pharisees and teachers of the law, good guys. They muttered, this man, that's Jesus, welcomes sinners and eats with them. And there's your clue. Jesus broke bread with broken people. And according to the good guys, this shouldn't happen. Sinners, tax collectors, they weren't worthy of breaking bread with a rabbi, much less with the Son of God. Listen, you need to know that breaking bread together, sharing a table, was a deeply intimate act in Jesus' culture and in his time. And it still is today, but not quite as much as it was then. There was only one thing you could share with someone that was more intimate than sharing your table with them. And that one thing is stuff we don't usually talk much about at church, but you know what I'm getting at. But sharing a table with someone is almost as intimate in that setting. To invite them to your table, to welcome them and break bread with them, it was to affirm them, to affirm their humanity, to accept them as they are, right? So it was a way of, of proposing something to the people that, that you're inviting in. It is, it is almost like table fellowship points to covenant relationship. And Jesus is saying that these sinners, these tax collectors are invited into covenant relationship with him just like those religious guys are. He's making a specific proposal. Now listen, this would shock us today. Even today, when eating together is not as sacred a deal, we know that sworn enemies probably don't break bread together very often not in a civil, public way like Jesus did with the sinners. We know that, right? If it did, it would make headlines, right? It's, it's a strange thing. Like imagine if the Houston chapter of Black Lives Matter, right, the organization, right? If they invited the, the East Texas Grand Wizard of the KKK to come and, and have dinner together and they broke bread and they laughed and they cried and they loved each other. And imagine the headlines that would make. It would shock you to see that imagine if our president right president trump invited the enemy of the like uh uh vladimir putin or, well, that wouldn't really work uh imagine if he invited hillary clinton over for dinner and they had a nice dinner and they were pleasant and dignified and they honored each other imagine if you would ever see that that would never happen right well that's the kind of shock value that this carried with jesus Right, doing this with these sinners. These sinners were supposedly the enemies of God, and here they are, welcome at his table. This is something new. This is a proposal that Jesus is offering up. Now, this idea of proposal as a way of defining the relationship has been heavy on my mind lately, in some good ways, though, right? So this week, on Friday, my wife, Giovanna, and I celebrated 21 years of Wedded Bliss, the 21st anniversary of our wedding day. And I will never forget the way I proposed to her. I'll never forget that night. It was May the 17th, 1998. We were finishing up our first year of college together. We were 19 years old. And May the 17th was exactly nine months to the day after we, the day that we first met right so we only had nine months together we had never lived together we had never you know done any of that stuff together and and we were as innocent as you could imagine the next week I was set to fly out to South Korea to spend the summer studying abroad I was studying religion and the Korean language and I also knew that Giovanna was preparing to spend her summer here in Houston uh, working at a church in West Chase, and I knew there was a guy working at the church with her that summer, named Mike, who really. Uh really was into her and really wanted her uh, for himself, I suppose. And I knew uh, that they were going to be together that whole summer. And I knew that if I didn't lock her down before I left for Korea, I would spend the whole summer there crying into in my pillow, thinking about the two of them working together. And so that's when I decided to propose. <laughs> that's when I decided to make, to ask the biggest question of my life. It was mostly out of desperation and jealousy, uh, but I proposed. No, I didn't have money to get the ring, so somehow I'll never understand this. Somehow I convinced the college chaplain, who also didn't have money because he was a college chaplain, but he had decent credit, and I uh, somehow wrangled him and convinced him to co-sign a Zales Fine Jewelry uh, credit line for me, and I bought Giovanna a $1,000 ring that I ended up paying probably $10,000 for throughout my 20s, thanks to sales, fine jewelry, credit line, and that interest rate. But it didn't matter as long as she said yes. Now, we got back to the campus, the chaplain and I, and, and he let me have free reign over the chapel that whole day. So I set up this romantic scene, right? So uh, in the in the choir room of the chapel, I set up the most romantic scene you've ever You've ever seen inside a choir room of a chapel before? (laughs) I set up a a dinner that I got takeout from Olive Garden. I lit more candles than they light for like a Madonna video. It was spectacular. Giovanna came. I fed her dinner. I walked her upstairs to the balcony of the sanctuary in the chapel afterward. And I got down on one knee, said, Giovanna Chavez, Giovanna Elizabeth Chavez, I want to love you for the rest of my life. Will you marry me? And in spite of the fact that we were 19, (laughs) in spite of the fact that I had not even talked to her parents yet, in spite of the fact that I still uh, had never let my hair grow out. I still shaved it bald all the time. And and I I looked like I was sick or something, in spite of the fact that I lied to her and told her that I made that dinner with my own two hands when it was obviously Olive Garden, (laughs) in spite of the fact that she hated that two-tone, half-carat, marquee-cut cluster ring that I bought her. (laughs) She said yes. And that's all that mattered. Mike, if you're listening, Sorry, buddy, (laughs) not sorry at all. Uh, Now, I know my proposal story doesn't hold a candle to the proposal stories we're accustomed to hearing now. Thanks a lot, millennials. Millennial men came along and ruined proposals for every other generation with all your firework shows and your uh, you know, your sky riding and uh, your dance routines on top of Mount Everest or on safari in the Serengeti. Uh, you just keep outdoing each other. But that didn't matter to me, the show of it. All that mattered is that this girl I love said yes and that our relationship from that moment would be forever defined. As unconditional and eternal and exclusive. The proposal that God offers us is clear throughout the Bible. He makes it again and again. And nowhere is it clearer than in these four stories Jesus tells. So in the first story, in Luke 15, Uh, the shepherd who left the 99 uh, found sheep, like those sheep were cool. They didn't wander off. They were behaved sheep. And he left them in open country to go out and find the one lost sheep. What you need to know about every story Jesus tells is that there were people in his audience who knew better. They knew better. So let me explain. There were shepherds in Jesus's audience who were hearing this, about this story about a shepherd that left 99 perfectly good sheep to go and find one. He left the 99 vulnerable to go and find the one. There's shepherds in Jesus's crowd thinking to themselves, that's not how you do it. But that's the point. God is a different kind of shepherd with us. That's exactly the point. When this shepherd found the lost sheep, he didn't punish it or beat it so that the sheep would know to not wander off again. He didn't despise the sheep for being dumb. He didn't resent the sheep for being rebellious. He didn't even make the sheep walk back. Luke 15, five says, when he found that he joyfully put it on his shoulders and walked home with it. This dumb, rebellious sheep got lost and didn't even have to pay the price of walking back home. He got a ride on the shepherd's shoulders. Jesus is communicating something about the covenant God makes with us and our role in it. But the clearest example of God's very specific proposals to you and to me is found in the third story Jesus told, the story of the father and the prodigal, this lost son who was Listen, there's no other way to put it. He was just the worst. He was entitled, lazy, mean. He took his inheritance from his father before his father was even dead, which is another way of saying you're dead to me, dad. I don't care about you. I'm done with you. Goodbye. And he took the money and he left and then he wasted all of his dad's money on living wildly went to parties and women and booze and stuff and it was only when he ran out of money that he thought maybe I should go back to daddy again and he goes back to daddy and and he does have his hat in hand all credit to him for that but he still wants to use his dad to survive and believe me when I tell you there were probably fathers in Jesus's audience listening to his story about this father and saying to himself that's not how you do it because this father made a fool of himself. He saw his son coming in the distance and he ran toward him at full speed without even a weapon in his hand. He ran toward this no good son who used him and left him and came back with only an embrace in mind. And he kissed him and he hugged him. And the fathers in Jesus's crowd are thinking that's not how you do it, but that's the point. God is an altogether different kind a of father. He proposed a different kind of relationship. He hugged him. He kissed him, even though this boy of his was filthy inside and out. God is a different kind of father altogether. In Luke 15, 21 to 23, we see the covenant this father proposes to his son in five moves, okay? You're gonna see this play out. So first was the embrace, right? He ran to him and the the verse that I read earlier. And then 21 to 23, the son said to the father, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to even be your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring, put it on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. this is a very specific proposal. The father is offering the son. It's the same proposal that God offers us. We see it in five different moves. The first one is the embrace. And by running to embrace the son instead of beat him or punish him or give him the cold shoulder of resentment, this father embraces him and this sends a message of unconditional love. The father is telling the son, you could mistreat me even worse than you already have and it wouldn't change my affections for you. That's unconditional love and that changes hearts. It changes the world. The second move that we see is with the robe. It says that the father wanted the best robe brought to be put on his son. Whose robe do you think was the best one? It was, of course, the father's own robe. And the father asked that his robe be placed on his son's naked shoulders so that he could cover his son. And in um, Hebrew and Greek, the languages of the Bible, the word cover and the word forgive overlap. And so what he's saying is, I offer you forgiveness. I've got you covered. That's why in English it works too, right? You're at a bar. Your friend forgets his wallet again. And you you say what? Don't worry. I've got you covered. I'll pay your tab. I'll pay your debt. You're forgiven. You're released. And so the father offered an unconditional covering, unconditional forgiveness to his son. He said, you've hurt me, but you're still mine with that robe. Third, The ring that he put on the boy's finger was uh, clearly the family signet ring. It was a reminder to his son who he was and whose he was. It was a symbol of unconditional belonging. Even though he didn't act the part, even though he betrayed his family, he still had a family. He still was an heir, even though he blew his inheritance. He still was the father's son even though he didn't deserve it. The ring was a symbol of unconditional identity. Fourth, the sandals that he put on his son were also significant. Sandals were a status symbol of that time. Regular old servants working in someone else's home for someone else's family, they went barefoot. They didn't have that kind of luxury. When the father puts sandals on his son's bare feet, he is saying, you are not just a servant here, you are a son You have freedom. You are free to choose me or to walk away from me with these sandals I put on your feet. That's love. That's real love. And this father proposes it for his son. And finally, with the feast of the fattened calf, you know, people, wealthy people would fatten their calf for, uh, for months, you know, and, and then the fattened calf was used uh, to have a party for the entire village or for the extended family. And so the fattened calf was killed and they had a party in honor, not of the father who deserved it, but of the son who did not. And the father offered his son unconditional honor. He showed him dignity. And respect, he made him feel special. Even though he most certainly did not deserve it. This is his proposal. Now, it's not just God's proposal to you. It's also his blueprint for you. As you think about that one person I asked you to keep in mind earlier. Do you remember? I said it'd be 20 minutes, a little bit longer than that. Sorry. But that one person you kept in mind This is your blueprint for loving them well. And I want you to think about this one person and really do some soul searching here. And this might hurt a little. It might sting. You may be tempted to point the finger elsewhere. I beg you, do not. Just be introspective. Ask yourself as you look and consider the proposal God has made to you. Unconditional love, unconditional forgiveness, unconditional belonging. You know, all of these attributes of his love, can you say you've made any similar proposals to the one you love, the one in your mind right now? Have you made promises that come anywhere close to the ones God has made to you? In other words, have you defined the relationship with your friend, your spouse, or hey, parents, even with your kid? Some of us grew up without a mom or a dad teaching us these basic truths about unconditional love. And this feels like foreign territory to you. No one ever loved you this way, you're thinking. No one ever showed you this stuff, you're thinking. I don't know how to do this. I'm out of my comfort zone here. Listen, someone has loved you this way. Even if you're just now realizing it, someone has always loved you this way. And so don't let other people's failed attempts at love detract you from the path he has set you on. God has always loved you this way you can let his love be the model that you look to for how to love your children you can break this cycle of conditional love in your family that's been there maybe for generations you can be the one that breaks it and you can choose to love your kids the way god first loved you you can define the relationship along those terms and listen god's love is strong enough to save billions of souls like mine and yours maybe. But God's love can also go home with you today. And God's love can also save a marriage today. When a husband and a wife, or even just one of the two, choose to love the other the way God first loved us, God's love can bring a marriage back from the brink. God's love can restore a relationship that was dead. God's love can resurrect a loving friendship. God's love can bring anything back from the dead. Will you choose to love the person in your mind, and your heart right now, the way God first loved you? Is there anything more that this world we're living in right now needs than people who believe in God Choosing to love like he does? Listen, is there anything more that that this angry, hurting country of ours needs and for people who believe in God to love each other regardless of whatever differences might set us apart, to love each other the way he first loved us, to propose a relationship the way God proposed to us, to define our connection to one another. The love of God is the hope of the world. I hope you've already chosen to receive it for yourself. If you haven't, now could be the time. Say, Father, I choose to believe in faith that you love me this way, the way the Father loved the Son in this story. And I hope as you keep that loved one in mind, you choose right now to love them way God first loved you. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray for our broken world and our broken nation, our broken culture and our broken hearts. We feel fragmented and torn apart. We feel like our love hasn't been enough. And maybe that's because love for us has become conditional, emotional, just merely transactional. Remind us, Father, that your love is far greater. It's something supernatural, something that goes beyond human capacity. It is all loving, all the time, all forgiving, all embracing. Father, no matter what, it is not conditional upon our behavior. It receives, it welcomes, it dresses, it covers, it sets free, it celebrates, it dignifies, it honors even the dishonorable among us, even me, Father. You say that I'm yours, even when I have not behaved as such, even when I do not deserve it. Thank you for that love. That is the hope of this broken world and our broken hearts.